Uh, this is our second gathering here at the Race at Home, and we're so thankful to be able to meet. And people ask, like, why are we doing these gatherings? And we're doing these gatherings because we are passionate about helping reveal who God really is. For many, the God that people have been told about for years, for maybe their whole entire upbringing, is unlovable. Many of us have even resisted belief in God that can allow suffering, evil, and tragedy. And there are many people who've been saved into faith by the fear of hell instead of the love of God. And so my message is, I basically have one message I preach about a hundred different ways, is how we can clarify, how we can correct, and how we can redeem these broken images of God in our minds. Because A.W. Tozer, he's one of the most profound writers in all of the faith. He said this, he says, What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And what comes to mind when we think about God is actually controlled by the stories that we have heard. Those stories create narratives in our minds. And those narratives then act as the gatekeeper to determine what we believe about God. And those narratives are everywhere. And so if you change the story, you change the narrative. If you change the narrative, you completely transform your relationship with God. Because there's a lot of people who've said a prayer who are maybe going to heaven, I don't know, but are completely estranged from the love of God. They have no relationship. And just because you can be saved by the fear of hell does not mean that you are connected to the love of God. But when we correct the story, the narrative changes. And if the narrative changes, we change everything that we believe about God. And so our first gathering, I talked more about this and about the narrative that we believe with the fall of man and sin entering the world and the story we believe is that when mankind sinned, God separated. And many of us believe that God is so holy that he can't be around sin, can't be around sinful men, and so therefore he fled, and we had to work our way back to be reconciled, but God is so holy that he had to be separate from us. And that narrative has poisoned our desire to pursue and love a God who actually cannot bear to be around us in our fallen state. So last time we corrected that story and, re and we revealed how that is not true at all and how God pursues us and chases us while we're dirty, while we're broken, and while we're in our worst. He is running after us. If you want, if you missed that, you can download the full message on our website. So that was one of the first pillars in our mission to help clarify and reveal God's real nature is to pull out this narrative that we believe about shame and estrangement, that we feel shame and that we... We believe that God runs. And so tonight I want to share another story that we believe that has created a narrative of God that keeps us distant, estranged, and afraid. And this one is about the death of Jesus. Specifically, why he died, what it means, and what happened to us because of him dying. Now you're all thinking like, I already know. It's like the basic Christianity 101 is the death of Jesus, right? I'm going to show you why I believe that probably what most of you believe about the death of Jesus probably is either wrong or at best maybe a little inaccurate. Now the death of Jesus, it's probably the most important event in all of history, right? I mean, any anthropologist, any historian would say like, 
Yeah, the life and death of Jesus was pretty substantial. All of our clocks count backwards from the life of Jesus, right? It was so important. And that is when Christianity was born, and we'd see the cultural transformation throughout the entire world at that time. And so believing in Jesus' death and resurrection is the fundamental belief that makes you a Christian. It is in the epicenter of all of Christianity. And no other topic in Christianity could be more important. And there could be no other topic in all of Christianity that is so misunderstood. We misunderstand its purpose, we misunderstand its meaning, and we misunderstand its power. If you were to Google, why did Jesus die? Like a lot of people do. You get what many, and I would argue what most, Christians believe. Let me read this to you. This is like the top 30 results. This is the view you're going to get if you were to Google, why did Jesus die? If you open up a lot of theology books, this is what you're going to get. Are you ready? Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty for our sin so that we might become the children of God. Jesus' death was necessary because a just and perfect God could not simply ignore sin. Meaning, he just couldn't sweep it under the rug and keep on moving on in a perfect universe. And we're told that God, in his holiness, in his just, righteous nature, he had to deal with sin. And God's wrath came to deal with sin. And the blood of Jesus, Jesus dying on the cross, exhausted that wrath. That is what... I would say most of us believe. It's what I was taught to believe in college. And it's what a lot of people preach from a pulpit, and that is like the paradigm of Jesus' death. You might be like, well, what's wrong with that? I'm going to show you. But let me summarize this for you. That In other words, God is so holy, so just, that there must be punishment for our sin. And that God's wrath was stored up for thousands of years, and on its way to be unleashed bringing death to all of mankind. But then Jesus, right, he comes to earth, he lives the perfect life, and then on the cross stands in our place, taking the full wrath of God upon himself, satisfying the wrath of God, and because the punishment for sin was complete, that we now have peace with God. And from that description... Can you understand why some people are a little bit unsure about loving God the Father? It sounds a little bit more like the Godfather to me. That God was so full of wrath, coming to rain down his death upon us, and then Jesus jumps in front of us, like jumping to take a bullet for us, and then God puts to death his perfect son, as punishment for us. Now, I don't know about you. It's kind of an awkward dynamic, isn't it? For us, looking to God. Like, imagine it's like, hey, I want to tell you about God. He loves you so much that he punished and killed his perfect son instead of you so that you would love him. Do you want to receive him as your Lord and Savior? This, we laugh. But this is, this is like theology that a lot of us believe. And if that causes you an unsettling feeling, it's because it ought to. This narrative is exactly how we get this 
good cop, bad cop view of God. Because everyone loves Jesus. I don't care what religion you are. You love Jesus, right? Like, Jesus is great. I mean, he's like blonde hair, blue-eyed, white, apparently, calling lambs on his lap and children. And everyone loves Jesus. I'm making fun of the Baptist posters that I grew up. We are all great with Jesus. And then it's like, well, tell me about God the Father. Yeah, that's kind of like mean stuff in the back. Kind of not really sure there. And so you see a lot of people who, they're all about Jesus. And they're completely unsure about the Father. And I find this everywhere. I find it everywhere. People are cool with Jesus, but God the Father, not really sure. And if you have a go, and if you have a good cop, bad cop of Jesus and God the Father, your belief system is broken. Because Jesus came to reveal the Father. Jesus said, The Father and I are one. Jesus says he only does what he sees the Father doing. Jesus said he came to reconcile us to the Father. And yet we have two completely different views of God, the Jesus version and the Father version. But the book of Hebrews says this. It says Jesus is the perfect image of the Father. But that doesn't ring true for our belief system. So if you have a good cop, bad cop view of God, you will never have an intimate relationship with God the Father. Because no one wants an intimate relationship with the bad cop version of God. So how do we fix this bad cop view of God the Father? And I suggest to you that the bad cop view of God is primarily made possible by the belief that God the Father punished Jesus in our place. But what if that isn't what actually happened? What would change about us and how we relate to God? What would change about us how we pursue God or even are curious to know him or even love him? Consider this. I think it's one of the most profound verses in all the Bible. It says, 1 John 14, 4, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. It says this, the one who fears is not perfected in love. I submit to you that the belief that God the Father punished Jesus instead of us infused us with fear and makes us incapable of having the perfect relationship with God, making our love of God actually imperfect. Now, we might believe that we are saved from punishment and if you want to continue to believe, that's totally cool with me. But I would suggest to you that we will never give God our unguarded heart. So I want to visit this central issue of Jesus' death and ask, do we really understand what happened when Jesus died? We know that Jesus and his death was the answer to sin. But we totally misunderstand how. So my aim is to help you remove to whatever capacity... Fear of God the Father exists in your heart and in your mind. Because that fear is going to keep you from desiring and knowing God the Father. And I believe that the fear is planted in here by these narratives. And like any message of mine, if you don't like it, that's totally cool. I actually don't have a job to lose. Please come back. But if you don't agree, that's great. This is, and, and relax. If this like upsets anybody or makes you nervous, 
None of what I'm going to tell you tonight is going to have any bearing on your eternal salvation or eternity. I'm not after that tonight. I'm after what is in your heart about who you believe God is because that is going to change your life in more ways you can imagine. And so be at rest. But I want you, if you don't agree, that's cool. Just go seek it out for yourself. So are you ready? Maybe some of you guys are nervously laughing. As I go forward, what I want to do is I want to give you the shorthand view, this conventional view. I'm going to call it the punishment paradigm. So as I say the punishment paradigm, it is this paradigm that God the Father punished Jesus in our place. And in the punishment paradigm, there are several problematic things that should make us question the story. The first one is this, is that this is kind of a big one. Jesus' death is never described in the Bible as punishment for sins. I went there's like, surely if Jesus was punished in our place, surely the Bible would be filled with verses telling it all over the place. And it's not in there. The word punishment, hello, the word punishment is found only seven times in the New Testament. And I just gave you one of them, that the one who fears is not perfected in love because fear involves punishment. That's one of the seven. Not a single one of the other six involves Jesus and sin. In fact, I found every verse in the New Testament that describes what the death of Jesus did. There are 88 different passages that describe the death of Jesus and what it did for us or what it did for the world. And I've condensed them. I'm not going to read all 88, but I've condensed them and summarized them into the common things. Let me just read this for you. It made us new. It was an atonement. It redeemed us. It was a propitiation. It justified us. It adopted us. It saved us. It purified us. It sanctified us. It took away our sin. It reconciled us. It canceled our enemy status. It freed us from sin. It freed us from death. It gave us an inheritance. It caused us to be dead to the law. It caused us to be dead to sin. It caused us to fulfill the requirement of the law. It made us righteous. It made us alive. It hid our life with Christ. It paid a ransom. It purchased us. It made us at peace. It rescued us from the evil in the age. It released us from our sin. It removed our condemnation. It healed us. It created a new covenant. It protects us from future desolation. It destroyed the works of the devil, and it triumphed over demons. Amazing, right? And I'm looking through like, surely, surely there's punishments in here somewhere. Not one of them mentions punishment or even implies punishment. And I'm not saying that maybe Jesus wasn't punished. Maybe he was. I'm just saying that the first part of my challenge with this narrative is it's not found in the scriptures. And people actually miss meanings of words. I said, well, it says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. And they confuse that to mean punishment. But atonement means at one meant. It means to be reconciled. Propitiation means to appease. And actually, the Greek word for propitiation actually means mercy seat. It's the exact opposite meaning of what we typically give it. And so there are zero verses linking Jesus' death to our punishment. And more challenging to believe this punishment paradigm is that we have to ignore a lot of important verses is that if you believe in Jesus, 
that you've died with him. Which is an amazing scriptural truth. I, don't ask me how to describe it or how to understand I, I don't get it. I don't get that how I died with Christ, was buried with him, and raised I don't get that. It's what the Bible says. That you're buried with him, that you're raised with him. I have no idea what, how that works. But that's what the Bible says. So, follow me here. God could not substitute you for Jesus in order to punish him for your sins if the Bible also says that you died with him. Isn't the whole point is that Jesus was punished and killed instead of you? Right, I mean, right. this logic is here, right? So, so we have a huge biblical mystery trying to justify this punishment paradigm in the Bible. And on top of it, when Jesus is describing and predicting his death at the Last Supper, he pours the wine and says, this is my blood, poured out for the punishment of sins. No, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus self-describes his own death, not as punishment, but as forgiveness. The second thing is if we are forgiven, like Jesus said, why also would Jesus need to be punished? If the punishment paradigm is true, then our standing before God is actually a little confusing. Were our sins punished, or were they forgiven? Because it doesn't seem to me that they can be both. Sins that were forgiven don't need to be paid for by punishment, do they? So if Jesus paid the penalty, why do we need forgiveness? And if God, the Father, forgives our sins, then he would be cruel and unjust to also have punished Jesus for them as well. Are you following me? A debt paid doesn't need to be forgiven. And as you can see, it's kind of a mess. It's also noteworthy that in every confrontation with sin, Jesus forgave. He didn't punish, right? Remember, Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. And if Jesus only sees what he sees the Father doing, you'd expect there to be a lot more punishment than the zero times it occurs. Do you ever see Jesus punishing people for their sins? The best example is the woman caught in adultery. Caught in the act of adultery, brought before Jesus, all the religious people there, all with, they find stones all over the place. I don't, I don't know what land they live in where there's all these stones ready to kill people, but this is the, the sin that's like immediate death penalty. And he forgives her. He says, go and sin no more. The third thing is this is that punishment would be inconsistent with the Old Testament symbolism of Jesus' death. Jesus' death is supposed to be a shadow of Old Testament sacrifices. And therefore, many liken Jesus' death to the animal sacrificial system where animals were sacrificed for punishment of people, except the animals weren't punished. It's a big misconception. Studying the Jewish sacrificial system, animals... The sacrifices of animals was never about punishment. Animals were sacrificed as part of the ceremonies in order to create covenants and covenants of forgiveness. The death of an animal never, ever in the Old Testament ever represented punishment. No lamb or goat was ever punished for the sins of an entire nation. And think about this. No one would ever think that one lamb or one goat could be the punishment for the sins of an entire nation nation of people for a full year. And so the Old Testament sacrifices, when an animal died, it was the renewing 
of a covenant of forgiveness, not a punishment upon the animal for the sins of others. So Jesus' death on the cross was a shadow of the Old Testament animal sacrificial system, then we cannot add principles to Jesus' death that weren't there in the Old Covenant system. No animals were sacrificed as punishment, so we cannot interpret Jesus' sacrifice as punishment either. The last thing is this. Punishing Jesus, in my view, my opinion, is not authentic justice for sins committed. It's believed that God is so just that the sins of mankind had to be punished. God's justice, God's righteousness demanded it. In order for God to be just, he had to deal with sin and punished Jesus in our place. But has anybody ever thought if that is justice at all? Let's pretend I go and rob Mike Phelps. Now, he's heavily armed, so I probably wouldn't get away with it, but let's just say I could. I go and rob Mike Phelps' house, and a warrant is out for my arrest. But Tim, Tim Rasich, he really likes me. And Tim goes to the judge. He's like, Judge, I know Eric stole from Mike. I know there's a warrant out for his arrest, but hear me out here. I'm going to take the punishment for Eric and throw me in prison. And then the judge agrees and sentences Tim to 10 years in prison for me robbing Mike's house. Would any of us believe that justice was served? And what would we even think about that judge? And this is the same problem that we have with God's justice being punishment for Jesus in our place. If this is justice, to me, it's beyond any definition of justice I've ever known or can even understand. And in this view, God's judgment and penalty for sin is no different than an unpaid parking ticket where the city doesn't care who pays the fine, just pay the fine. I'm using extremes because I want us to really wrestle with was Jesus punished, because I want to give you the better view. And is that the same paradigm of justice that we have with God? Is that true? To have punishment paid regardless of who committed the sin? And so this idea, it twists our understanding of justice itself and makes God the Father, to me, a monster, and at the very best, immoral. And I remember... I've had a wild journey in my faith, but I was tormented in my junior and high school years. I loved Jesus, but felt so remorseful that Jesus died instead of me. And I felt guilty that Jesus was wrongfully punished for me. I loved Jesus, and I'm like, mad. I was like, but why? He didn't do anything. I should have been an attorney, apparently. And rather than appreciation for Jesus' sacrifice for me, I distrusted God's justice. And above all, I distrusted his character. And it poisoned my view of the Father. And also, it makes us question, what is Jesus really saving us from? With Jesus taking our punishment from the Father, the message our heart receives is that Jesus is actually saving us from the Father not from hell. And this is the exact opposite of what Jesus came to do. 
Jesus did not come to save us from the Father, but to actually reconcile us to the Father. Are you guys still with me? Yep. We're going deep. <laughs> you got a lot of scared looks on some faces out there. But can you see how the punishment paradigm is challenging at best and at worst seeds a poisonous view of God's character, his nature, and his judgments. So we can see that the punishment paradigm is problematic on many fronts. So if Jesus wasn't punished for our sins, how do we explain the meaning of Jesus' death? How do we explain the Father's role? There's a lot of people involved in this. I need a flowchart. And here's the thing, is our entire gospel hinges on the death of Jesus. And for me, it was like, I know the lines, but my heart is screaming out, something's not right, it's muddy. And so the language in the Bible surrounding sin and Jesus' death is super interesting. First, says Romans 3.23 says, The wages of sin is death. Full stop. First Corinthians 15 says, The sting of death is sin. First Corinthians 5.21, this is crazy, it says, God made him, speaking of Jesus, God made him who had no sin, to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible also says that Jesus gave his life as a ransom. And so these are puzzle pieces to what's going on. But before Jesus came, the book of Isaiah prophesied that God would send a suffering servant. And this is the prophecy of Jesus coming. This is Isaiah 53. And yet it has very odd descriptions to it. In sending the servant to suffer, it says that the servant was bruised and pierced. And here's what's troubling. It says, and it pleased God. What? It pleased God to send your son, your servant, to be bruised, to be pierced? How could the father ever be pleased to send his only, his perfect son, to go die? Certainly there's no pleasure in punishment, is there? How could the Father be pleased with Jesus dying? This doesn't make any sense. Another confusing passage is in Hebrews 12. It describes Jesus anticipating his death. You know what it says? It says, And Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. I've never been sentenced to death, but I would not describe it as the joy set before me. Completely broken expectations of what we'd expect, both from a father perspective. It pleased him and Jesus. It was the joy set before him. And so the picture of both God the Father and Jesus is incredibly confusing. No one is pleased to send their son to die, and no one looks towards their own death as the joy set before them. So what is going on? And now, if you are a parent, you are about to get an amazing revelation of theology. If you're not a parent yet, you'll get this war one day. For the parents here, have you ever had a child suffer? Have you ever had a child go through excruciating pain? I hope not that you've ever even had that experience. I pray that none of you have. But unfortunately, it's all too often where a parent has a child that then is suffering, and I witnessed this in excruciating agony for many years, a little over 10 years ago, a little girl named Daisy Merrick. She was five years old, and she was diagnosed 
with a Wilms tumor. And Daisy was the daughter of one of the most influential people in my life and also a pastor. His name was Britt Merrick. Britt Merrick, if there's any surfers out here, yes, it's the Al Merrick Surfboard Shaping Company, Empire. He was an amazing pastor, preacher, a friend, and incredible man of God. He has a five-year-old daughter. I mean, my, it's just like it brings me to tears because like, not far removed from my own kid's age, develops a Wilms tumor. Now, Wilms tumors have usually a 90% chance of recovery. But that's not what happened with Daisy. She had 20 surgeries over the next four years. And those of us in the community, we watched and wept as Daisy went through multiple rounds of chemo and surgery and radiation, watching a five-year-old go through something that she should never go through, go through it multiple times. And I will never, ever forget the words and the prayers of Britt Merrick over and over again. God, let me take her place. Just let me have the cancer, Lord. I will take her place. I will do anything. And I, to this day, I've never witnessed such agony to trade places with a child. And so there are parents, I'm sure, here tonight that would give anything to trade places with their kids or something might be going on. And we can just imagine, we can imagine our own kids going through chemo and surgery and just like, you're there, like, I will do anything, just let me take it for you. But four years later, at the age of nine, cancer won. And I watched Britt Merrick's message announcing her death, and I just wept in my office. And again, just the rawness of a father, like, pleading, why not me? Why couldn't I take her place? And that was a singular plea that he was never able to have happen. Whew. Heavy, right? I want you to capture the heartbreak of that story and know that a father, a good father, would do anything to trade places with his terminal child to save them and to realize that this is our story. That is our story. That is actually the gospel message, that we are God the Father's precious children, inflicted with a terminal condition, not with cancer, but with sin. And God, so grieved by our condition, decides to do something about it. And just like any parent wanting to take the child's place, that is exactly what God did. What a human father could not do for his five-year-old girl with cancer, God did for every soul on the planet. That God decided to come to earth in the form of man, in the form of Jesus, and in order to take our place so that we might live. So now, the narrative is starting to make sense, shifting our focus from a judge to the view of a father. And this is what we do. This is how we fix our broken image of God. And it reveals what is really going on in Jesus' death. And just to relate it to you on a, another human level, imagine that you are out in the desert with your child, for whatever reason, and a poisonous snake jumps up and bites your child. You see that it's a poisonous snake, and you realize in an instant 
that your child is going to die within the next 15 minutes. And the only way to save their life is to suck the venom out of them. But in doing so, you take the venom into your own body. What would your disposition be at the prospect of taking the poisonous venom out of your child, your son or daughter, in order to save them? I don't know about you, but my daughter is about to die from venom. I am pleased to take the venom myself. That means I'm taking the venom from my daughter who's about to die. It is the joy set before me to go and rescue her, to take what is in her that's going to kill her and take it upon me. It is a joy before me, not even a second thought. I'm sure every parent here, imagine the pain and the suffering for their kids. If they had a chance to do it, they would do it in a heartbeat. This is not even a question for a father, for a mother. And that is what it means when the Bible says that Jesus bore our sins. We don't find that Jesus was punished. We find these crazy imageries in the Bible that Jesus like bore our sin. What does that mean? It's that same imagery that Jesus took the sin from the mankind, like sucking the poisonous venom out of his child onto himself. And he becomes sin. That's what the Bible says, that Jesus became sin. How is that possible if Jesus is not taking the sin from all of the world, all of humanity, and becoming it so that we might become the righteousness of God? And so now, the narrative is starting to make sense. Now, collaboration between God the Father and Jesus now is making sense. Now, Jesus' death and our salvation starts to make sense. And this is the gospel story. The gospel is not God the Father punishing Jesus for sin so that we escape punishment. The gospel is God conspiring with Jesus so that the ruler of all creation would come to earth and take our place so that we might live. Jesus literally and figuratively died in our place, taking sin upon him and letting sin bring the death upon him in full. But then God raised Jesus from the dead. And in some miraculous work, our old self is done away with, and we were made new. And then the most amazing epic plot twist ever is that the devil, the author of all sin, all death, conspiring with the will of man to crucify Jesus. If you notice, every time it talks about who killed Jesus in the Bible, it's man. It's not God, it's man. So the devil conspires with mankind to put the living God to death to the schemes of man, only to discover that Jesus' death would turn out to be his own downfall, that God would raise Jesus from the dead, defeating the devil, defeating all sin, and defeating all death once for all. So the death of Jesus is the most amazing event in all of history because God himself came and took our place and took all the sin upon himself and absorbed all death, just like a father or mother would do to save their terminal child. And then simultaneously, a covenant of forgiveness. That Old Testament shadows, the, the promises like, I promise that you are forgiven. You are right. You are redeemed. You are made clean forever. And the death also then vanquished 
the enemy. No longer will the devil be able to lay claim on anyone forever without their permission. And then a brand new identity and brand new creation for every soul who believes in him. And I don't know about you, but when I realize that that is the real story of what happened, I cannot wait to get to know God more. I mean, if you've seen the movie Taken, which is an amazing movie, you're like, this is incredible that God of the universe conspired to overthrow evil and save us in our terminal states and to make us new. It is the greatest story in all of history and a story in which we cannot wait to know that God more. A God that's going to just punish Jesus when it is my fault? I don't know. But a God that conspires with Jesus to overthrow sin and death and to save us and redeem us and take upon the weight of all sin and death for all eternity so that we might live, that is someone I want to spend eternity with. That's someone I want to give my life to. That is someone who I want to, that I can be totally free with. There's no fear in that person because I don't have this like dark cloud of punishment and fear over my heart. And so when our fear is removed, we are actually then perfected in love. And we can experience the relationship with God the Father that we are designed for. And even though we redeem the gospel story to see that God is this loving and sacrificial Father that he is, we still have some more problems. Why is there suffering in the world? Why is there evil in the world? A lot of people believe that God actually causes trials, tribulation, cancer, disease, suffering, and that poses another huge threat to our heart. Why do bad things happen? Well, do you want to know the answer? Do you want to know how to reconcile a God who's supposed to be good with a world that is full of pain? Let me tell you, at our next gathering next month... My aim is this. We can have the band come up if you guys like. My aim is to remove, help you remove the fear of the Father from your heart so that you might be able to pursue him and to know him as he truly is. Fixing the story changes the narrative. We change the narrative. We change everything that we believe to be true about God. So my hope is that the revelation of God's heart for you is made clear and is made known to you. And that you would have a renewed image of God in your mind and your heart that opens the door to a brand new, renewed life. I'm going to ask Eric Waterbury to come up and he's going to close us and speak some declarations over us. And I want you to know, like, wherever you are at, wherever your heart is at, man, be honest with what is going on in your heart with the Father. And if we can pray with you and, and encourage you, we would love to do that and help you and, and be a support to you. So.